ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Described as radical and gossipy when published 20 years ago, writer and critic Chris Krause's novel I Love Dick, set in New Zealand and New York, has turned out to have enduring clout, netting fans such as Lena Dunham with its confessional format and its interrogation of misogyny. The book is now a television pilot directed by Emmy winner Jill Soloway, and its success has also prompted the re-release of another Krauss novel, Torpor, described by Slate as resisting the cult of relentless positivity by cultivating a much-needed counter-aesthetics of despair. Krauss speaks with Kevin Rabelais about who gets to speak and why in a session supported by the New Zealand Contemporary Art Trust. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Good afternoon, and welcome to this session of the Auckland Writers' Festival. I love Dick. My name is Kevin Rabelais, and it's my pleasure to be here today with you and our distinguished guest, Chris Krause. Thank you. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you to please double-check that your phones are turned off. And while the festival encourages you to share Auckland Writers Festival activities on social media, please do so with consideration for your fellow audience members. I would like to acknowledge the support of the New Zealand Contemporary Art Trust for Chris Krause's visit to New Zealand. We will keep time at the end for questions from the audience. Journalist, artist, filmmaker, performance artist, organizer of the Chance event, which brought together 600 participants to investigate the meaning of chance at Whiskey Pete's Casino in Nevada. And of course, influential novelist, Chris Krause has juggled many careers. Her work continues to challenge and defy expectations. And all of this makes it difficult to pigeonhole her as a writer. And her work, for that reason, is, is all the more exciting. She's the author of several books of nonfiction, among them Hatred of Capitalism and Where Art Belongs. Her fiction includes the novel Summer of Hate, as well as the trilogy I Love Dick, Aliens and Anorexia, and the recently reissued Torpor. Please join me in welcoming Chris Krause. Thank you. I, th I think you've talked about beginning with a section from Torpor, about reading from a section. Are you willing to read? Yeah, that would be great. Okay. That would be great. Um, okay, um, I'm gonna go over there and read. So I guess I need to give you a little bit of backstory here, because I'm not gonna begin at the beginning. Um, the couple, Jerome and Sylvie, have been on a road trip around Eastern Europe, um, ostensibly, she thinks, to adopt a Romanian orphan, but really, in his mind, to see Eastern Europe one more time. It's one year after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and he wants to have one last look at Europe. The big backstory is that he's a child survivor of the Holocaust, and this has kind of colored everything about their couple and their life together. And just before the scene that I'm gonna read, they have a huge blowout fight where all of the kind of repressed antagonisms between the couple come to the fore, and then the inevitable kind of couple reconciliation. And they're somewhere in a place called Kurovoci, and they wake up in a cabin, um, and there's daisies all over the field, 
and, uh, and I'll pick up from there. I'll pick up from there. The characters' names are Jerome and Sylvie. Carvajal seems to be a market town for the surrounding farmland. Underneath the summer sky, 19th century rural archetypes drive shiny Renault Clios to transact their business. The butcher and the baker, the pharmacist and the notary, all set up in pastel stuccoed buildings grouped around the village square. Dirty and road-weary, Sylvie and Jerome park and walk around in search of coffee. Holding Lily, I'm sorry, I forgot, the most important character really in the book is the couple's dog, a long-haired miniature dachshund named Lily. Holding Lily in her arms, Sylvia imagines Thomas Hardy's classic novel, Michael Henchard with his wife Susan and their baby, wearily approaching Waden. Hopefully a happier fate awaits Jerome and Sylvia here. They find an old-fashioned tobacco in order to express those. Lily crawls up beneath the bar at Sylvia's feet, and no one seems to mind. Next door, there's a bakery. Jerome goes out by six fresh rolls. Augsburg and Romania both seem a long way off. They order two more cups of coffee and relax. As they're sharing the third roll, Sylvie looks out the plate glass window and sees a woman passing by with a small dog. Incredibly, the woman's dog is practically identical to Lily. They've never seen a dog before with Lily's unique breed proportions, the sensitive dachshund face, the long cocker legs, the silky reddish coat, the floppy ears. She tugs on Jerome's sleeve and points, and yes, Jerome agrees, there's Lily's twin. Swooping Lily up, they rush outside to introduce her to her Coravacci cousin, but by the time they reach the sidewalk, the woman and her dog are halfway down the road. They decide to take a walk. Perhaps they'll find a butcher shop and buy a bone for Lily. Jerome clips Lily's leash onto her collar and takes Sylvie's hand. As they walk around the central square, they notice Caravaggi's stuccoed houses changed to stone. It's like the Breton countryside, with its web of pietons and walkways winding through snug villages with scalloped slate on gambrel roofs. Tea roses blossom wildly behind wrought iron gates and rough stone walls. They'd been to Brittany six years ago. It was the first trip to France they'd taken with their dog. Sylvie tugs on Lily's leash, remember? But now her spine is stiff with age. She has difficulty walking. Jerome scoops her up. Sylvie gives the dog a little kiss and looks up at Jerome. Double snout, remember? Jerome raises Lily's small, thin body towards his lips and plants a kiss on one side of her muzzle while Sylvie leans in to kiss the other. Their heads meet above the top of Lily's nose. They walk until they reach the country. Barns replace garages. Tidy gardens turn into split-railed yards. Two dogs wander past them on the road. The lead dog is a German Shepherd mix. He's followed by a small red dog that looks astonishingly like Lily and like the woman's dog they saw at the tobacco. What kind of strange coincidence was happening here? At home, Lily's mix was utterly unique, but here she seemed to be part of an entire breed. Was Caravacci her ancestral home? Jerome sets her down and props her up on her hind legs so she can get a better look. Midor, Midor, he calls out to the other dogs. Come and meet your cousin. Lily bares her few remaining teeth and growls as the two dogs lope past her down the road. Sylvie reaches for Jerome. What if Lily had a child, she wonders. 
For the first time since arriving in Berlin, she is gripped by an enthusiasm that floods through him with her gaze. Well, yes, of course she knows that it's impossible for Lily to have an actual child or puppy. Uh, she'd been spayed before she left the pound. At 13, she was less biologically equipped for motherhood than Sylvie. But then the epiphany that visited Sylvie all those months ago at Dear Leap Past returns as a reprise. Because of course, they could adopt a puppy. This concept moves her practically to tears. Consciousness moves ever forward. She forgets about Romania, the nylon zipper bag, the child. Yes, Jerome blissfully agrees. We can try to find a puppy. Sylvie forces back a sniffle and Jerome's blue eyes fill with tears. The subtext of their many fights is suddenly on the table. When Lily dies, there will be very little left between them. Without her, there'll be no audience for their routines, no happiness except Jerome's for Sylvie to lament and engineer. But if Lily had a puppy, if Lily raised and trained the dog herself in her remaining twilight years, there would be a bridge between their history and the future. Lily's sufferings, her sensitivity, would not have been wasted. With this canine continuity, everything that happened to them up to this point would be redeemed. A small but neatly fashioned kennel loomed to, Gen to Jerome's right just up the road. Built like a breezeway in between a ranch-style house and its garage, the kennel was a slab of poured cement surrounded by a chain-link fence. Behind the fence, two full-grown replicants of Lily jumped up on their hind legs and barked as if to guard their litter of some six or seven puppies. At 10 weeks old, the red-haired puppies look like little lilies. Bravely, Jerome walks up the driveway to the kennel holding Lily in his arms. Her Slavic cousins growl and bark. Lily's long ears tremble. She's scared, but she knows she's safe in Jerome's arms. But then a man comes out the front door and speaks to them in rapid Czech, or was the language now Slovenskan? He's in his early 60s, leaned with a straw hat. Perhaps he's a retired farmer. Clearly, he wants to know what these strange people, who these people, strange, strange people are, and what they're doing in his yard. Sylvie stands behind Jerome, expectant, eager. Her heart sinks, realizing that they probably have no common language. It's so important now for them to make themselves understood. Regard, regard, Jerome calls to him, holding Lily out before him. The man apparently does not speak French. Sylvie, normally so shy addressing foreigners, leaps into pantomime. Jumping up and down, she points at Lily and then at his caged puppies. She does this several times. Look, she says in English, we want to buy a puppy. The man looks at her quizzically says something in Czech. Sylvie tugs at Jerome's sleeve, defeated. Suddenly, he remembers what the universal language is. He takes out his wallet, waves a wad of Deutschmark Florence dollars. The farmer shakes his head firmly, holds up his palms for them to stop. He speaks again in Czech. Jerome puts away his wallet. A pause. Everybody smiles. In perfect French, Jerome makes a second brave attempt. Vous voyez, monsieur, notre chien est très âgé. Elle va bientôt mourir et nous l'aimons beaucoup. Aussi, nous aimerons en avoir une autre, une nouvelle petite chienne. But the dog doesn't understand, the, ma the dog man doesn't understand a word of French. Sylvie's never felt so close to something or so far. 
The farmer interjects a string of angry-sounding words in check. Sylvie grabs hold of Lily to present her to the dog man. Here, she pleads, don't you see? This is our dog. Her name is Lily. She's 13 years old, and she's probably going to die soon. Last spring, she had a tumor, and the vet swore it was benign. But I think he lied, because look at her chest. It's already started coming back. The man shakes his head and sighs. He has no idea what these strangers want. Are they trying to sell their pet to him? Then why did the man want to give him money? He already has nine dogs. He doesn't need another. Jerome fumbles in his backpack for a notebook and a pen. He's actually very good at drawing. All those months when Sylvie hovered on the brink of suicide, he'd drawn cartoons to cheer her up. Pictures of the three of them. Pictures, Sylvie cooed, of Lily. Quickly, he, ske he sketches out a picture of their dog wearing a broad smile, surrounded by a sea of puppies. Ah, the dog man laughs and claps him on the shoulder. Firmly, he takes hold of Lily, unlocks the chin link gate, and throws her in the kennel. No, Jerome and Sylvie scream together. We do not want to give her up. But the dog man obviously knows better. If the pair of them want puppies, well then, with his entire sinewed body, he mimes the motions of a male dog humping. Sylvie and Jerome look sideways at each other. Instinctively, they step apart. They haven't fucked in, what, six months? Faithful to their distrust of each other, they are celibate. Meanwhile, Lily cowers against the chain-link fence. Back arched higher than a cat, the dog wishes she could disappear. When the Slovenian male comes up and sniffs underneath her tail, she lunges out and bites him. Clearly, this is not going as well as anybody planned. Tactfully, the three avert their eyes to give the dog some privacy. When they finally turn back to see what's happening in the kennel, the dogs are doing everything except for fucking. They sniff and growl, they lick and bite. Lily rolls onto her back, but the Slovenskan male is bored by her submission. Nose in the air, he trots back across the cement kennel to his mate, who has observed the whole performance patiently. Sylvia is humiliated, shamed by her dog's sexual dysfunction. She's forgotten how impossible it was for Lily to get pregnant. She's forgotten what they really wanted was to buy a puppy. The idea that they could just stride into Slovenska and grab a little foreign dog seems silly. The dog man steps into the cage and hands Lily back. Chasen, Jerome clips on her leash. They thank the man, and the three of them return to town. They'll be in Hungary that night. Afterwards, they never mention Koravoci. Thank you. Hey. Thank you for that reading from the recently reissued <laughs> Torpor, which tracks its two main characters, those two characters through Romania and the former Yugoslavia in that era after the fall of the Berwin, Berlin Wall, post-MTV but pre-AOL, as you write. Right. That cultural and political history of that era and much of the 20th century indeed pervades the novel, and history itself becomes a, a character in the novel. From Torpor, quote, Jerome collected Holocaust statistics the way others traded baseball cards. Can you take us back to the initial spark for Torpor? How did the novel begin for you? Well, I've, I've got to say it began with I Love Dick. Um, 
when I finished writing I Love Dick, or when I was getting to the end of I Love Dick, I realized that the most important question really hadn't even been asked in the book, which is what could possibly bring a married couple to the point where they're collaborating on love letters to a third person? And in order to that answer that question, I would have to go way back and talk about their couple in a real way. And since I saw I Love Dick basically as a romantic comedy, that wasn't the place for it. Um, and I knew it would take another book or two to get to that place where I could really explain the historical trauma that overshadowed their lives. You write, in fact, that while writing I Love Dick, you realize that you, you had that trilogy, the arc of a trilogy, Aliens and Anorexia fits in the, in the middle. At what point did you, you realize you've got the trilogy there, and how about Aliens and Anorexia as that sort of bridging novel to get you to torpor what you're talking about now? That was just the outtakes of I Love Dick. <laughs> I mean, it became something else, but it began with the outtakes of I Love Dick. There was just a lot of material. And, and you also write that um, with Torpor, you write in the third person, and you say that it's kind of this strange thing where you realize that it was too personal to use the first person point of view. What was the process like of, of finding the right voice to write about what's too personal? And, and since you have been talking about the autobiography in your work, in fact, there's a Guardian article you wrote almost a year ago today, what, what does too personal mean to you? Well, I mean, obviously, Torpor is a much more personal book because it has to do with the real feelings and lives and histories of those characters and their place and time. Um, I love Dick. The two characters could be almost every, anyone. I mean, you've got the college professor, you've got the ingenue. They're almost like Commedia dell'arte stock characters. Um, Torpor goes a lot deeper. It's also a comedy, but it's a very dark comedy. And it took me a long time to write, find the right place to write it from, to find the right pitch, definitely. I mean, it began as little short paragraphs, and I had a whole collection of them, and I just thought, what? I'm not Lydia Davis. <laughs> I'm not writing, like, you know, prose poems. Um, so I started to write links between them. I started to expand them a bit and write links. It took me a long time to write the book. And, um, I mean, the historical trauma that I'm talking about is not just his background as a child survivor, but the historical trauma of Europe at that moment, of the IMF shock therapy, and of the adaptation or the fail to adapt by various countries of the former Soviet Union, the winners and the losers. Romania, obviously, being the big loser for many, many years, and that's where the book ends up. You just mentioned two things, uh, Comedia dell'arte, comedy. I think about your work and the way it blends and contorts genres and forms in a lot of ways. Uh, I Love Dick, as readers know, unfolds through a series of letters. In Torpor, the narrative makes, makes note of its use of parataxis, namely the novel structure of, as you write, flashing back and sideways, holding back the outcome of events. Your work can be picaresque at times, uh, in the case of Summer of Hate, it's noir. In Summer of Hate, you write about Cat Dunlop, your, your main character there. You write, she saw no boundaries between feeling and thought, sex and philosophy. 
How important is form for you and the, and the blending or the searching for a new form? How important is that for you in each book? It's critical. I mean, I think it's why I've written relatively few books because it takes a long time. Each book requires a different form and it takes a long time to find out what the form is going to be. You know, that's the kind of painful, murky part, kind of stumbling around in the dark. Once you find the form, then you can write the book. But it's different, as you say, from book to book. Can you talk about one of the books in particular, finding the form for I Love Dick? At what point in, the, in, when, in thinking about that book and planning or mapping that book, and what, at what point did you have the form of the letters? Well, there were two parts to it. I mean, the letters, completely naive. Um, I edited them, but I didn't change them very much. The letters were written as letters. They were given or sent or not given or sent, exactly as it says in the book. And that went on for several months. Um, but two and a half years later, when I realized it was a book, I rented a cabin out in the desert and I took these folders and folders with me. And I started to write the third person narration, you know, Chris and Sylvia, turning them into characters and, you know, describing the letters as evidence and the whole book as a case study. So at that point, I knew that I was writing a comedy, you know, sort of in the vein of uh, Liaison Stan Giroux's Marivaux, kind of a set, like a kind of high intellectual sex comedy. Writing that comedy, high intellectual sex comedy, I mentioned that Guardian article where you write everything that happens in it happened first in life, but that doesn't mean that it's a memoir. Uh, this is not the, the only novel of yours that breaks boundaries, of course, but what did you think about, uh, or what does fiction allow you if everything, hap if everything that happens in the book happened in real life, as you tell us, yeah. what does fiction allow you that the memoir doesn't? Why a novel? I never, the, the term memoir never occurred to me. And I always found that kind of distasteful and icky. I mean, not something I would want to read, let alone write. But the kind of fiction that I've always liked, I mean, I was friends with, long before I started writing, I was friends with poets uh, at the St. Mark's Poetry Project. And through them, I became a reader. And there's such a tradition of fiction that is written in the first person, and no one questions the fact that it's a novel. Um, and the events in fiction and literary fiction are always drawn from real life. I mean, it's only in the most kind of fanciful genre fiction that it's entirely invented. Um, in literary fiction, you can always find the person somewhere. And that's part of the seduction and the romance of reading the book. So, I, I mean, the fiction that I've always liked always had that element of the person in it. You, you mentioned the St. Mark's Poetry Project. Am I correct that that's the, the group that also included Patti Smith and Kathy Acker? Well, no, actually neither of them were oh. very active okay. at the Poetry Project. <laughs> Kathy turned her back on the Poetry okay. Project as soon as she knew she wanted to be famous <laughs> and have a career. And Patti Smith appeared there once or twice, but there are a number of people who are much less well-known, but very serious poets, you know, and very 
you know, I mean, really great, inspiring writers. I mentioned Kathy Acker because my understanding is you've just completed a biography of Kathy Acker, is that correct? Yeah. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that project? Well, yeah, I mean, um, it's not a big doorstopper book. It's not a cradle-to-grave book. In it, I start when she's 23 years old and she's moved back to New York trying to figure out how to become a writer. Somebody told me once that you can tell what kind of biography it's going to be by where it starts. So a lot of them start with the childhood, right? The birth, the parents' professions, the grandparents' professions, and those are usually going to be more of a psychological biography. I was much more concerned to write a career biography, how she became a writer, how she became the writer that she was, and as a writer, to, to really get inside her work and figure out how she... I mean, she was an incredibly inventive and innovative writer in her early work, and she really did discover something new. And I wanted to kind of get inside that and figure that out. Stepping back to Torpor for a moment, you, you write in Torpor that to organize events sequentially is to take away their power. And this, this makes me think of your earlier background as a filmmaker and the editing involved in filmmaking. How did, how did your background in filmmaking prepare you for your life as a fiction writer? I don't know if it did or not, except that when I started writing, I would always pull the blinds down and make sure that the room was very dark. And I always saw writing as kind of as if I was transcribing a movie. What sparked that initial interest in film to begin with? What sparked that interest? Well, because I mean, it was a very kind of circuitous path. I went to New York to study acting. And that didn't work out, and it was suggested that I was too analytical to ever be an actor, and I ought to think about filmmaking or directing. So I made eight or nine films, and finally a feature film in New Zealand, Gravity and Grace, and that clearly didn't work out so well either. And that was when I began writing. That, that Although I gotta say, Gravity and Grace has been shown more in the last decade than it ever was after it was made. And I do think that if it had been a successful film in those terms 20 years ago, no one would be interested in it now. I mean, the very things that made it difficult and unlikable at the time was it, that it was made make it really appealing to people now. That film plays a very important role in Aliens and Anorexia, which weaves reflections on the life of the philosopher Simone Weil with the production of that feature film, Gravity and Grace. Can you take us through the process of discovering that the arc and structure of that novel, of taking uh, philosophy, and as you often do, theory, and combining it with your characters, so theory and, and fiction, at what point did you realize that those what seemingly diametrically opposite uh, fields could work for you in a novel? Because it was all in my head, right? I mean, I was just very naive, and I thought, well, writing is giving a report on what's in my head. And that happened to be my concerns, what I was thinking about. I was deeply touched by reading Simone Fay's work. Um, basically, I, taught, you know, I learned how to read French so that I could read her books before they'd been translated. Um, she spoke to me in a way that Kathy Acker's early work spoke to me you know, as if you'd written it yourself. You know, that sort of deep voice that makes you completely cannibalize somebody's work. Um, but how I found the form for Aliens, I was very lucky because 
if I hadn't have started having this online BDSM relationship with a New Zealand producer who will remain nameless, who was shooting a big budget film in Namibia, if we hadn't started having an online affair while I was writing the book, it would have been a pretty kind of straightforward scholarly academic treatment of Simone Weil. Mm -hmm. But the irony that I was sort of working with bits of memory about this incredibly failed film in New Zealand, and this guy who I'd probably crossed with at parties in Wellington was making this humongous movie with movie stars. It was too great an irony to leave out of the book. And so that became a through line. Our email correspondence became a through line to the book, and I wrote it in real time, which was very important, you know. It's happening now, I'm thinking this now, he called, now I'm sleeping, now I'm doing, you know, in the present tense. And the present tense animated it in a way that it wouldn't have been if I was just kind of writing in a more scholarly way about Simone Weil. I Love Dick, of course, has had multiple lives and it's got a, a completely new life as well. Before we talk about that, would you please read a passage from I Love Dick for us? Sure, do we have time? Yes, I believe we do. Okay, perfect, okay. <laughs> then I will, thank you. Okay. So this is easy, now back, sorry, I'm just gonna read from the beginning of the book. Uh, the first part is called Scenes from a Mirage, December 3rd, 1994. Chris Krauss, a 39-year-old experimental filmmaker, and Silver Lochinger, a 56-year-old college professor from New York, have dinner with Dick Blank, a friendly acquaintance of Silver's, at a sushi bar in Pasadena. Dick is an English cultural critic who's recently relocated from Melbourne to Los Angeles. Chris and Silver have spent Silver's sabbatical at a cabin in Crestline, a small town in the San Bernardino Mountains some 90 minutes from LA. Since Sylvia begins teaching again in January, they'll soon be returning to New York. Over dinner, the two men discussed recent trends in postmodern critical theory, and Chris, who's no intellectual, notices Dick making continual eye contact with her. Dick's attention makes her feel powerful, and when the check comes, she takes out her diner's club card. Please, she says, let me pay. The radio predicts snow on the San Bernardino Highway, Dick generously invites them to both spend the night at his home in the Antelope Valley Desert, some 30 miles away. Chris wants to separate herself from her coupleness, so she sells Silver on the thrill of riding in Dick's magnificent vintage Thunderbird convertible. Silver, who doesn't know a T-bird from a hummingbird and doesn't care, agrees, bemused, done. Dick gives her copious concern directions. Don't worry, she interrupts, flashing hair and smiles. I'll tell you. And she does. Slightly buzzed and keeping the accelerator of her pickup truck steady, she's reminded of a performance she did called Car Chase at the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York when she was 23. She and her friend Liza Martin had tailed the steelily good-looking driver of a Porsche all the way through Connecticut on Highway 95. Finally, he pulled over to a rest stop, but when Liza and Chris got out, he drove off. The performance ended with Liza accidentally but really stabbing Chris's hand on stage with a kitchen knife. Blood flowed, and everyone found Liza dazzlingly sexy and dangerous and beautiful. 
Liza, belly popping out of a fuzzy midriff top, fishnet legs tearing up against her green vinyl miniskirt as she rocked back to show her crotch, looked like the cheapest kind of whore. A star is born. No one at the show that night had found Chris's pale, anemic looks and piercing gaze remotely endearing. Could anyone? It was a question that had temporarily been shelved. But now it was a whole new world. The request line on 92 point through the beat was thumping post-riot Los Angeles, a city strong on fiber optic nerves. Dick's Thunderbird was always somewhere in her line of sight. The two vehicles strung invisibly together across the concrete riverbed of highway like John Dunn's eyeballs. And this time, Chris was alone. Back at Dick's, the night unfolds like the boozy Christmas Eve in Eric Romer's film, My Night at Mods. Chris notices that Dick is flirting with her, his vast intelligence straining beyond the promo rhetoric and words to evince some essential loneliness that only she and he can share. Chris giddily responds. At 2 a.m., Dick plays them a video of himself dressed as Johnny Cash, commissioned by English Public Television. He's talking about earthquakes and upheaval and his restless longing for a place called home. Chris's response to Dick's video, though she does not articulate it at the time, is complex. As an artist, she finds Dick's work hopelessly naive. And yet she's a lover of, a, of certain kinds of bad art, art which offers a transparency into the hopes and desires of the person who made it. Bad art makes the viewer much more active. Years later, Chris would realize that her fondness for bad art is exactly like Jane Eyre's attraction to Rochester, a mean horse-faced junkie. Bad character invites invention. But Chris keeps these thoughts to herself because she does not express herself in theoretical language. No one expects too much from her. And she's used to tripping out on layers of complexity and total silence. Chris's unarticulated double flip on Dick's video draws her even closer to him. She dreams about him all night long. But when Chris and Sylvere wake up on the sofa bed the next morning, Dick is gone. December 4th, 1994, 10 a.m. Sylvere and Chris leave Dick's house reluctantly alone that morning. Chris rises to the challenge of extemporizing the thank you note, which must be left behind. She and Sylvere have breakfast at the Antelope while the IHOP. Because they are no longer having sex, the two maintain their intimacy via deconstruction. That is, they tell each other everything. Chris tells Sylvia how she believes that she and Dick have just experienced a conceptual fuck. His disappearance in the morning clinches it and invests it with a subcultural subtext she and Dick both share. She's reminded of all the fuzzy one-time fucks she's had with men who are out the door before her eyes are open. She recites a poem by Barbara Barg on the subject to Sylvia. What do you do with a Kerouac but go back and back to the sack with Jack? How do you know when Jack has come? You look on your pillow and Jack is gone. And then there was the message on Dick's answer phone. When they came into the house, Dick took his coat off, poured them drinks and hit the play button. The voice of a very young, very California woman came on. Hi, Dick, this is Kyla. Dick, I, I'm sorry to keep calling you at home, and now I've got your answering machine, and I, I just wanted to say I'm sorry how things didn't work out the other night, and I know it's not your fault, but I guess all I really wanted was just to thank you for being such a nice person. Now I'm really embarrassed, Dick mumbled charmingly, opening the vodka.
Dick is 46 years old. Does this message mean he's lost? And if Dick is lost, could he be saved by entering a conceptual romance with Chris? Was the conceptual fuck merely the first step? For the next few hours, Silver and Chris discussed this. December 4th, 1994, 8 p.m. Back in Crestline, Chris can't stop thinking about last night with Dick. So she starts to write a story about it called Abstract Romanticism. It's the first story she's written in five years. It started in the restaurant, she begins. It was the beginning of the evening and we were all laughing a bit too much. She addresses this story intermittently to David Rache because she's convinced that David's ghost had been here with last night, been with her last night for the car ride, pushing her pickup truck further all the way up Highway 5. Chris, David's ghost from the truck, had merged into a single unit moving forward. Last night I felt, she wrote to David's ghost, like I do when things seem to open onto new vistas of excitement, that you were here, floating dense beside me, set someplace between my left ear and shoulder, compressed like thought. She thought about David all the time. It was uncanny how Dick had said somewhere in last night's boozy conversation as if he'd read her mind how much he admired David's book. David Rattray had been a reckless adventurer, a genius and a moralist, indulging in the most improbable infatuations nearly until the moment of his death at age 57. And now Chris felt David's ghost pushing her to understand infatuation, how the loved person can become a holding pattern for all the tattered ends of memory, experience, and thought you've ever had. So she started to describe Dick's face, pale and mobile, good bones, reddish hair, and deep-set eyes. Writing, Chris held, Dick, Chris held his face in her mind, and then the telephone rang, and it was Dick. Chris was so embarrassed. She wondered if the call was really for Silver, but Dick didn't ask for him, so she stayed on the scratchy line. Dick was phoning to explain his disappearance the night before. He'd gotten up early and driven out to Pear Blossom to pick up some eggs and bacon. I'm a bit of an insomniac, you know. When he'd finally gotten home to Antelope Valley, he was genuinely surprised to find them gone. At this moment, Chris could have told Dick her own far-fetched interpretation. Had she, the story would have taken another turn. But there was so much static on the line, and already she was afraid of him. She feverishly considered proposing another meeting, but didn't, and then Dick got off the phone. Chris stood in her makeshift office, sweating. Then she ran upstairs to find Sylvia. December 5th, 1994. Alone in Crestline, Sylvia and Chris spent most of last night Sunday, and this morning, Monday, talking about Dick's three-minute call. Why does Sylvia entertain this? It could be that for the first time since last summer, Chris seems animated and alive, and since he loves her, Sylvia can't bear to see her sad. It could be he's reached an impasse with the book he's writing on modernism and the Holocaust, and dreads returning next month to his teaching job. It could be that he's perverse. December 6th to 8th, 1994. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of this week pass unrecorded, blurred. If memory serves, Tuesday that term was the day Chris Krauss and Silver Lotzinger spent in Pasadena teaching at Art Center College of Design. Shall we attempt a reconstruction? 
They get up at eight, drive down the hill from Crestline, grab coffee in San Bernardino, hop on the 215 to the 10 and drive for 90 minutes, hitting LA just after traffic. It's likely they talked about Dick for most of the ride. However, since they plan to move out of Crestline in just 10 days on December 14th, Sylvain to Paris for the holidays, Chris to New York, they must have also briefly talked logistics. A restless longing, driving through Fontana and Pomona, through a landscape that meant nothing, with an inconclusive future looming. While Sylvain lectured on post-structuralism, Chris drove out to Hollywood to pick up some publicity photos for her film and shop for cheese at Trader Joe's. Then they drove back out to Crestline, winding up the mountain through darkness and thick fog. Wednesday and Thursday disappear. It's obvious that Chris's new film isn't going to go very far. What will she do next? Her first experience in art had been as a participant in some druggy psychodramas of the 70s. The idea that Dick may have proposed a kind of game between them is incredibly exciting. She explains it over and over to Silvera. She begs Silvera to phone him, fish around for some sign that Dick's aware of her, and if there is, she'll call. And I'll stop here. Thanks. Chris Krauss. Thank you. That novel has, of course, had many lives, and I think of, of one of those lives where it was sort of carried around as a cult classic in the Semiotext edition, the publisher that you helped found, and then it's got this new life as a very popular novel, and, and then suddenly the television series as well, which you just reminded me is, for the television series, there's an all-women's writing room yes. for the series. Can you tell us a little bit about that and about your involvement with the, the series? Well, I, you know, I totally support the show, and I think Jill Soloway and her crew have done an amazing job, but I wasn't involved in any hands-on way. I wanted to work on my own work and write another book, but she did, I think, it's the first ever all-women's writing room. Uh, the women there who I've met say that often they're the only woman in the writer's room. So that's huge. And most of the episodes in the first series were directed by really outstanding female directors of mostly independent film. So it's a breakthrough in so many ways. I mean, the boundaries of how close television can come to the aesthetics of independent filmmaking, uh, that's just one of them. We talked earlier about film and what led you into to that life as a filmmaker, but what about literature? What, at what point did you realize you wanted to stop the filmmaking and to start writing and to write writing fiction? Well, I mean, exactly as it says in I Love Dick, when I started writing to Dick. Mm. Um, I, I didn't know I was writing a book. I just knew that I had things that I needed to talk about, and I hadn't been able to talk about them before, without an addressee, someone who I believed was listening. So however improbable it was as a romance, by holding this person, this crush in my mind, and positing him as the perfect listener, I found that I was able to talk about all kinds of things. And as soon as I started writing, well, very quickly in the book, he's replaced. It becomes Dear Diary. Dear Dick becomes Dear Diary. But by that point, I knew that I was going to keep writing. You mentioned romance. You've also spoken of the novel as a universal comedy. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think as you can tell from just the little bit that I read, the Chris and Silver character are archetypes. There's nothing really that 
personal or unique about them, and the situation itself is so comedic and archetypal. So I was playing it, obviously, that way. I was playing it as an archetypal comedy rather than as a kind of deep psychological drama. Summer of Hate seems to take a different direction. It seems to be a much darker book. How did you find your way into that book, that material, and does that signal a new direction for you? Yes, Summer of Hate deals with the criminal justice system in the US during the height of the Bush years, 05 and 06. And I basically finished with that material with Torfer. It was a trilogy, I knew it would be, and I finished it. And my life had taken me to the Southwest, that part of the country. And I mean, it, I felt during those years almost like a Nazi collaborator. Um, I mean, I know things are bad now in a whole other way and possibly even in a worse way. But at that time, no one was talking about what was happening. You know, terrorist suspects were being rounded up all over the country. Uh, an artist, Steve Kurtz, was arrested on charges of bioterrorism and his life was virtually ruined. I was in the art world and writing for all the art magazines. No one was talking about it. They were publishing articles about the situationist, you know, the political. Anything European and 30 years old was fine. Anything American, not worth talking about. So I really wanted to kind of dive into the heart of what was happening in the middle of the country. You've talked about some of your, your lives as an artist, as a filmmaker, as a novelist, but you also have a life as a New Zealander. You moved here with your family when you were 14, went to Victoria University in Wellington, were a journalist for several years before you moved to New York at where you were born. You moved back when you were 21. When you moved back to New York at that age, after spending the six, seven years in New Zealand, what did you miss about New Zealand? What did you miss about being here? Um, understanding how things worked. That they work much better here than in America? <laughs> Can I say that? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that was a very different thing. I mean, in New Zealand, I think even still, I was really struck by Nikki Hager's book, Secret Power, um, that inspired Simon Denny's Venice uh, installation, Secret Power. Um, because even still, I mean now, two or three decades later, Nikki Hager proved that it was possible to, trace, to make a decision tree and to trace things back, how does it, who was responsible, those are cause and effect. And in the US, even at that time, there's no cause and effect, you're just sort of in some kind of swirling chaos. It makes another kind of sense. What about the, the novel, the art of the novel? Your four novels. What keeps drawing you back to writing fiction? What keeps you excited, not only as a writer, but also as a reader? Because we were talking backstage about your love of genre. We were talking about Chester Himes and Elmore Leonard and yeah. all kinds of very diverse writers. What keeps you excited about reading and writing fiction? Oh, um, I don't know. I love to read. I mean, I, well, I'm, I'm reading Dostoevsky on this trip because I, I figured I would save him all these years. And I have to do a lot of travel this year. And then I realized I was saving it for a reason. So all these plane rides, instead of playing video games, I'm, I'm reading these books and really enjoying them. And, you know, actually meeting other people on this travel who've also read Dostoevsky. And it's like trying to form a little Dostoevsky club. 
Um, but also the work that we do with semiotics is very important, and we have a fiction list that feels very much like an analog to the theory list. Um, this is the, in the a way, Native Agents series, yeah, is that correct? Yes, okay. it's called Native Agents. Yeah. I'm not the only editor anymore. Hedy Alcalti, Silva, and I work on all the books list-wide. Um, but the fiction books really sort of explain in people's personal lives and circumstances conditions that theory books are describing. We've been publishing a lot of economic theory. Mauricio Lazzarotti, Antet, um, Franco Berardi. And the fiction books that we've published, one of them is about like a 25-year-old freelance branding specialist in Milan. And the other one is about a girl who kind of creates her own internet fame. Um, and both of these books kind of brilliantly exemplify things that the theorists are talking about. So that's incredibly exciting to me, the way these things animate each other. I'll ask a follow-up here, but I'll just say we have, we have time left. Those of you who do have questions, if you'd like to start making your way down, there are microphones on either side of the stage and also, I believe, midway down. So if you'd like to start making your way, I see a few people walking. Great. How, while, while you're coming down or preparing your questions, um, how did you, what, what sparked the, the Native Agent series? When did you decide to start that series as uh, underneath the umbrella of the publishing house, Semiotext? Because um, I was living with Sever at the time, and Foreign Agents was doing incredibly well. It had tremendous prestige, and uh, there were no women on the list. And Sylvia said, well, it's because all the women are doing psychoanalytic theory, doesn't interest me. And I thought, oh, then why not publish my friends? They need their books to come out. And so I made up a story about it, that, that kind of um, female first-person fiction writing was like a radical practice of subjectivity in the way that French theory was talking about theories of subjectivity. And we kind of got away with it. <laughs> Chris Krauss will be outside signing books following the event. She will also give a free contemporary art lecture on Sunday at 1.30 p.m. in the upper NZI room. And I'd like to thank you all for coming this evening. And please join me in thanking Chris Krauss for this wonderful afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Kevin, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.